Hello, folks, and welcome to Grit and Glitter, a weekly podcast dedicated to the power of women's wrestling, hosted by me, Javi Vasquez. And me, M. Fear. The OGs of the G&G Factory. We are here this week with another installment of our series within a series that we call Living Legends. We do this periodically, only periodically, because the amount of work that we put into this, the amount of research and deep diving that we do, we can't do this more than like once every couple of months. It would kill us, folks. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot to dive into, especially for Harley, who does the, the bulk of the research here. And so, and remember, we're dealing with people who have lengthy careers. So we're going back, you know, sometimes 20 plus years of a career. That's uh, That takes a little bit of doing. So we don't do these all the time, but it's really well worth it when we do it, because I know that we've heard from listeners who enjoy when we do these episodes. So, and I'm really excited for this one because this is one that I've been wanting to do since we started this project. So living legends is our long form biography series, essentially where we find a talented woman still working today in the wrestling business. And we tell you why she's so great, how she became who she is today and why you need to make sure you give her her flowers while you can. Yes. Previously, we've covered uh, wrestlers like Veda Scott, Gail Kim, Jazz, Mercedes Martinez. This time around, we are looking at AEW star, Joshi superstar, Emi Sakura. If your only familiarity with Emi Sakura is her work on AEW, you could hardly be blamed. Um, Emi has made a name for herself internationally amongst um Joshi and amongst wrestling worldwide, but she is not someone who's known in the most major of Joshi promotions that are popular today. So as big of a name as she is in some circles, it would be understandable from a Western perspective if you like were kind of only familiar with her via her, you know, more recent years on AEW. So this is the story of Emi Sakura. Kawa is born October 4th, 1976 in Kimitsu, Japan. She is 17 years old when she first discovers pro wrestling and starts to really become a fan. And she starts auditioning for all women promotions like LLPW and Gaia. But they tell her that she's not talented enough. Eventually, after just canvassing and hitting the pavement, she does get accepted into a dojo. It's the dojo for IWA Japan, the International Wrestling Association of Japan, which is interesting because it's pretty much an entirely male promotion. She is one of only two or three women in the entire promotion, but they accept her into their dojo in 1993 at the age of 17. There she's trained by Kaisuke Yamada and Akiya Sato, and she also, while helping out and training for IWA Japan, gets to study 
watch live in person and learn and get advice from gaijin wrestlers who come through on tour. Because while there's not a lot of women in IWA Japan, the men's scene is thriving and they're bringing in gaijin talent like Terry Funk, Mick Foley, and Dick Murdoch. And so she gets to learn at their feet. I'm kind of curious if maybe one of the reasons why all women promotions like LLPW and Gaia weren't as interested in Emmy as they probably should have been is because she has a fairly athletic build for a Joshi wrestler. Um, now there are, there have been popular Joshi wrestlers of like larger size, but um, for the most part, you know, a lot of Joshi wrestlers fall within a category of like being like more slight build, um, more like more petite, more slender. Um, and Emmy, right off the bat, even in her youngest days, is built very athletically. She's built solid. Like she's she's athletically built in a way that is offset often when you see her against her much, much more like petite and um, small uh, uh, counterparts. So it makes a weird kind of sense to me that someone, that a promotion like International Wrestling Association of Japan, like it does make a weird kind of sense to me that a, a promotion that specialized mainly in men's wrestling would would have a place for her there. They could see the athletic potential and what she could do. And it's interesting the way the way she wrestles her move set that we'll see later on in this episode. You know, not a lot of similarities with McFoley or Terry Funk, <laughs> but looking back now, this many years later, she certainly has had the longevity that Foley and Funk did. She certainly had the breadth of characters and the influence on generations that came after. The number of wrestlers who can point to one of the many McFoley characters as having influenced them, whether it's Mark Briscoe, whether it's Kevin Owens, very similar with Emi Sakura and the legion of women who are in wrestling today because of her. Oh, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, Emi Sakura is the Terry Funk of Joshi wrestling, like of modern contemporary Joshi. Like there is so many people, there are so many people who have learned under her, have learned because of her, who have became wrestlers because of the promotions that she founded. Um, so it, yeah, it, in a spiritual way, this is very in sync. So August, 1995, at the age of 19, Emi Motokawa makes her debut for IWA Japan. There was literally only one other woman in the promotion at the time. Her name is Kyoko Ichiki. And so they exclusively wrestle each other for a year. It's just a year, just the two of them facing each other every night <laughs> on every show. <laughs> but she gets her reps in, she's getting her name known to the extent that by 1996, she can now start branching out. Now she's wrestling shows in addition to IWA Japan. She's competing for JWP, She's competing for FMW, and she's wrestling on LLPW. So even though they turned her down when she was auditioning, they've come around in a couple years since, and now LLPW is happy to have her on their cards. <laughs> you better late than ever. August 1997, for an IWA Japan event, Emmy takes on American visiting gaijin Luna Vashon. And in a truly shocking turn of events, Emmy defeats Luna Vashon to win the AWF Women's Championship. AWF is a promotion out of Chicago, and this is noteworthy, not just for the fact that she won a Chicago Indies championship on a show in Japan, but it's her first championship of her career. Her first of many, many championships of her career. <laughs> and a couple months later, that fall of 97, IWA Japan starts a working relationship 
with AJW, All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling, which leads to Emmy wrestling for AJW. Now, obviously, this is huge for her because, like we said, IWA not known for women's wrestling. There's like two of them on the whole roster. AJW, this opens up a lot more opportunities for her in terms of opponents. Yes. Yeah. And they clearly see something in her and are interested in her because it's only a couple of months later, January 1998, that Emmy defeats Momo Nakanishi to capture the AJW Championship. She will hold the title for three months, defending against a number of different people. And when I saw this match in the record books, I said, this is our perfect first match for us here at Grid and Glitter because... It was IWA Japan's Spring Breeze Tour 98, March 13th, 1998, Emi Motokawa defending the AJW World Championship against perennial favorite, Ami and M, Sumi Sakai. Yes, I was so thrilled that this match was what kicked us off for, um, for our coverage here. Um, I mean, and Emi and, Ami and uh, Sumi are so well linked in both the fact that they have like long, long-term, you know, veteran status careers as Joshi wrestlers, but also with their impact of bringing those wrestlers into American wrestling, like actually into like, you know, North America for wrestling, um, both have made a huge, huge name for themselves. Um, in addition to their wrestling as being, you know, a promoter and sponsor and, a, and, and, a you know, a booking agent essentially for other talent to come overseas and work for various promotions. Sumi has done that and Emi has done that. And if you are a Japanese wrestler looking to get booked in America and you're not working for like one of the big, big, big promotions, they are two of the women who could get you in the door. Four years after this match, Sumi Sakai would go on to become, to wrestle in the very first women's match in ROH history. And long-term listeners to this show know that before Grid and Glitter, Em and I had a Ring of Honor podcast. So we watched Sumi Sakai also become the very first Women of Honor champion as well. And what's so funny is that was, what, 2018 we were podcasting about Sumi Sakai and ROH. This match that we watched here is from 1998. Sumi looks exactly the same. In every way, she looks exactly the same. <laughs> she She really does. I mean... She, she definitely looks more essentially herself than Emmy looks now because Emmy definitely like looks a little older, but like Sumi somehow is frozen in time permanently. This match, yeah, Emmy, Emmy also notable about all the matches on her playlist. She never had like consistent, never, she, she never had um, iconic like gear. Her, her look is different every single time, it seems. Every match we watch, she's got different color scheme. She's got a slightly different type of, like, unitard or singlet. Yeah. The only thing that's kind of, I, I guess this isn't even, like, similar necessarily, but, like, you can tell right off the bat from the first couple of matches we watched for this that, like, Emmy has always had a really strong aesthetic eye and an idea of presentation for herself when she comes into the ring. Um, and that's, that's from, that's, that's right from the get-go. Like, this match with Sumi, she's coming out with, like, full pageantry, full cape, like, looking every bit like a freaking queen. And she really owns it. So even though her aesthetic changes, there's always an element to her presentation that is big and showy and um, clearly modeled off her, like, 
her both her wrestling and her pop cultural interests. And it's it's really neat to see. Like it's something that like is is apparent right from the start. This match is for the AJW Championship, but it's on an IWA Japan card, which is noteworthy because, like I said, IWA Japan, predominantly male promotion. So I don't know if that's a factor here. The fa- you know, Knowing that you're the, one of the only women's matches of the night, maybe the only one of the night, I'm sure influences how you handle things. This match is 9 minutes and 40 seconds, but it's like high-speed action the whole way. The bell rings, Emmy immediately pounces on Sumi in the corner, knocks her to ringside with a drop kick, and then just like flings her body out of the ring with a suicide dive, all in the span of like the first 15 seconds. Yeah, it's an, it, it's insanely. It's well, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to be kind of a broken record. We might both be on these because uh, there is no lack of speed and athleticism in on display in these matches, but like there is just so much packed into every second. Sumi's main focus of the match is trying to go for her armbar. So that's kind of like the whole story is we see multiple times throughout the match. Sumi tries to go for an arm bar. Emmy blocks it with a hip toss. So she blocks it with a back body drop or with an arm drag. She keeps managing to avoid the situation. This is 1998. You know, this this match fits in with anything that you would see today, honestly. Like with this with the speed that they're going, with the, the surfboard. Emmy suplexes Sumi on the mats at ringside. Mm-hmm. We get the... The classic like top rope Kurana, we get a missile drop kick. We get uh, Emmy backdropping Sumi, but Sumi lands on her feet. Uh, actually, they both do, I think, at different points in the match, backdrop each other, and then they land on their feet and keep going. Oh, it's it's fantastic. And what's even more astounding is when you realize that like both of these women could still do all of this today. Yeah, I I this was one of my favorite matches of the on the playlist that we ended up watching, actually. But just good step back and forth. Sumi keeps going for the armbar, going for she hits she manages to get her rear naked choke on because Sumi is more of like an MMA specialist at this point. But in the end, Emmy hits like a side suplex, I think it is, like a really high angle side suplex for the pin to retain her championship. Only nine forty, but it feels longer because they just cram so much in. Yeah. I mean, in, in typical fashion, like you're gonna see more action in this individual like under ten minute match than you will in your like average, you know, TV women's match now. Um, then again, it is for like championship, but but just we're working at a very high level here. Um, there's oftentimes when we do these living legends, there's a little bit of a growing curve when we start with the early matches. We see the like, you know, the the finishings coming together. We see the we see the we see the work being done and over the course of the playlist we we see them become the wrestler that they that they are. Um in this case in this case with Emmy, like I feel like even watching an early, early match of hers, uh we're already seeing a top wrestler. Emmy holds the AJW championship for three months before losing it back to the woman she won it from, Momo Nakanishi. And she spends the rest of 1998 into 1999 basically doing double duty for IWA Japan and AJW, splitting her time between both. Until February of 99, when she suffers the first real injury of her career, a serious neck injury that sidelines her. She ends up missing six months of action in February. And when she finally gets back in the ring at the end of the summer, she doesn't go back to IWA or AJW, she ends up instead returning from injury and going to FMW. 
FMW Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling, well known to Japanese wrestling fans for no, for a number of reasons. Oh, you know, um, several people on fire, um, wrestling done in the middle of a giant pool, lots of, uh, you know, exploding barbed wire death matches. Like, <laughs> take your pick. August 99, Emmy starts wrestling full-time for FMW, and her long first long feud is with a woman named Kaori Yonayama, well-known to stardom fans today as Death, Death, Yamasan, Death. <laughs> <laughs> In FMW, Emmy also starts wrestling the first intergender matches of her career, including some trios tags where she teams against some New Japan names like Gato and Jado. Mm-hmm. Emmy wrestles for FNW for about two years, August 99 through to about August 2001, at which point she has to take time off again, this time to get hernia surgery in August of 2001. And even though she's only four years into her career, well, and that's not true, like seven years into her career at this point, she's already starting to become a little disillusioned. She's a popular wrestler. She's getting written about in magazines. She's getting featured in different Joshi circles, but the pay isn't there. It's 2001, and even for like a woman of her stature, it's just not where it needs to be. She says, quote, if you can't afford to buy the magazines that you're featured in, what's the point? So she has to take time off to get hernia surgery She's become disillusioned about the pay rate in wrestling and about the fact that she can barely get by. And she's, you know, this is her second injury in the span of two years now that she's had to miss time for. So she decides to retire. She quits wrestling in the summer of 2001 and she gets, quote, a real job. And while, you know, shortly thereafter, like a couple of months later, FMW closes down when... FMW, the, uh, F, the owner of FMW ends up taking his own life so his family can collect life insurance, pay back the Yakuza. It's a disastrous end to FMW. It's covered in an episode of Dark Side of the Ring from last season, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and so like FMW, over the span of these two years, has become, had become Emmy's real home promotion. So even if at this point... When she recovers from her hernia surgery, she's thinking about going back to wrestling. She doesn't have anywhere to go back to. Like, her home promotion is gone. Instead, like I said, she gets a real job. And she's working and she's living her life. But this is when we first get the sense of Emmy as teacher, Emmy as mentor, Emmy as one of these people that cannot escape pro wrestling whether you want to or not. And there are a lot of wrestlers who say, like, I'm done with wrestling. I'm, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And wrestling says, we're not done with you. Nah. So on the side, in the hours, in the afternoons and evenings, outside of her day job, she starts doing volunteer work, running an after-school program for kids. One day at one of these classes, she decides just for fun, she's going to show them how to do some basic pro wrestling moves. Kids being kids, wrestling being what it is in Japan, they love it. So then they want to see more, and they want to teach them how to do more. And the next thing you know, she's training these children on how to re- how to be wrestlers. And then next thing you know, they're putting on small shows for like 50 people with the kids wrestling each other on mats in this <laughs> in this room. Ask me how much I love this. I love it so much. <laughs> they end up calling it 
Garokunian. And as a result, around this time, March 2003, she decides to change her stage name from her real name of Emi Murakawa to the stage name of Emi Sakura. Now, she's teaching these kids how to wrestle for Garokunian. She's running little shows where they're wrestling, presumably, for their, their parents and neighbors and friends. <laughs> and this, of course, gets the love of wrestling inspired and sparked inside her again. And all of a sudden, she's back in the ring. She's wrestling for AJW again. She's wrestling for IWA Japan again. And she's also wrestling for Neo Women's Pro Wrestling. So she's wrestling for these promotions. I don't know if she still has her day job or not, but she's wrestling for these promotions. She's teaching these kids and running these little shows in Garakunian. And after four years of Garakunian running shows, it's getting a name for itself as well, to the extent that professional Joshi wrestlers are reaching out to her and asking, hey, how can we get booked on these shows? <laughs> and she's like, no, these are like 10-year-old kids that I'm just teaching like at an after-school program. <laughs> but people want it, people want in. And she realizes, okay, well, if things are going to continue, something needs to change. So she decides in April 2006 to leave Garakunian, and they end up closing like a year later. That's it for Garakunian. But what Emmy does instead is she goes to the town of Saitama, she buys an old dentist office, she turns it into a dojo, and she decides she's going to start a new promotion, and she's going to call it Ice Ribbon. Okay, so... This is why she is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Not just because she's an incredible wrestler, not just because she has a great aesthetic and an eye for presentation and is a consummate professional and is also, you know, is now in the position and has been for a long time in the position of training the next generation of amazing wrestlers. I just love the fact that she couldn't resist teaching these kids wrestling. It turns into promotion that she can't resist like, continuing and then she folds up promotion to start another promotion out of an old dentist office there's something so like in what's the word i'm looking for um undeniable indefatigable like one of those like irrepressible i think that's the word there's she's so like everything in her work history everything about her is irrepressible she will succeed no matter what in the span of five years she went from I'm done with wrestling. Like, if I can't make a living from this full time, then what's the point? Like, I give up. I'm getting a real job. To, I'm starting my own promotion. <laughs> <laughs> so she buys this dentist office in Saitama. She starts a promotion. She decides she's going to call it Ice Ribbon. And a group of her Garokunian students decide to follow her over to Ice Ribbon. This group includes Hikari Minami, Makoto, and a nine-year-old girl named Riho. <laughs> Ice Ribbon holds its first show June 20th, 2006. Early shows for Ice Ribbon take place at the dojo, while larger events eventually move to the famed Corkin Hall. Emmy makes her in-ring debut for, or in-mat debut, for Ice Ribbon <laughs> that October in a losing effort to the nine-year-old Riho. Not the, not the last time that they do will face off. Yes. Um, I don't... When just to flash forward for a half a second when Rio had the AEW women's title and they threw together the match against Emmy at one of the early pay-per-views during after Dynamite began airing they made a lot out of their history although not enough 
as a buildup to the match itself, which has a different story. But I don't think that they mentioned that, oh, hey, um, Riho beat Emmy in a match, in her debut match for her promotion uh, when Riho was nine years old. Riho went to an after-school program with some other kids, was like, oh, what, wrestling? And then made her career, made her life's work at the age of nine. Yes. Beating her mentor in a match right off the bat. So because Emmy's been wrestling for Neo as well as AJW and IWA at the same time, she has a close friendship with the promotion Neo Japan Ladies. Neo Japan is, re- is run by President Tetsuya Koda, and they decide to start this kayfabe storyline where Emmy and Tetsuya begin dating, which leads to the Ice Ribbon Girls making appearances for Neo and vice versa. This builds to a big seven versus seven match, February of 2007, the Sakura Ribbon Army, which is Emmy and six of the Ice Ribbon Girls, taking on Neo Machine Guns Army, which is seven of the Neo wrestlers, in a 14-person battle royal on the line. If Team Ice Ribbon wins, the Ice Ribbon Girls will give Emmy their her their blessing for her to marry Tetsuya Koda. <laughs> and <laughs> they do. Sakura Ribbon Army end up winning. Emmy has their blessing to marry Tetsuya. But instead, at the last minute, they change their mind. They talk her out of it. And she leaves him at the altar, choosing Ice Ribbon over love. <laughs> or, you know, choosing one love over a different type of love. <laughs> 2008... Emmy makes her acting debut. There's a movie in the works called Three Count about pro wrestling. And Emmy is basically hired to train some of the actresses in the movie on how to wrestle for the movie. The same role that uh, Chava Guerrero Sr. had for Glow or Chava Guerrero Jr. had for the other Glow. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it wasn't Chava Guerrero Sr. for Glow originally. It was Hector Guerrero, I think. For, for David McLean's Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Yes, it was. Unrelated. So 2008, Emmy is hired to act in a small role in this movie, Three Count, and also to train some of the actresses in the movie on how to wrestle, just so they can pass for the movie. The movie comes out, but the Emmy influence is so strong that three of the actresses in the movie become so interested in wrestling that they leave the acting world behind and follow Emmy back to Ice Ribbon to become full-time wrestlers themselves. That's how much they've inspired these, she's inspired these actresses. Of these three actresses, one of them is 20-year-old TV actress and idol singer Hikaru Shida. You ever look at Hikaru Shida and think, wow, she is like movie star beautiful? Yeah, that's because she was actually like a TV and movie star, so... It makes a lot of sense. An idol singer before she met Emmy, who and Emmy just like, she's like, wow, this wrestling thing's kind of fun. And f- 15 years later, women's champion in America. If we learned anything from Maki Ito, is that it, wrestlers have far more fun than idols. So Emmy spends most of 2008 pretty much exclusively wrestling at Ice Ribbon. But as she enters 2009, she turns a corner and she starts wrestling everywhere. 2009, she wrestles for at least nine different promotions, and she holds gold everywhere she goes. She's in bulk collector mode. 
She's winning championships in Ice Ribbon, in Neo, and JWP. As a result, she gets one of the most prestigious honors that any Joshi wrestler can win. Tokyo Sports Magazine, one of the biggest for pro wrestling in Japan, names her Joshi Wrestler of the Year 2009. Huge honor. So let's look at a match from 2009. The second match in our playlist has to appeal to the AEW and American fans and us. It was from Ice Ribbon's 81st show, May 2009, Emi Sakura and Masa Takanaishi taking on the team of Riho and Kenny Omega. Riho is what now? She would be... She's 12 here. She's 12? She's 12. This is Kenny's DDT and ROH period. He has the really short blonde hair, green trunks, yellow wrist pads. Yeah, it's very young Kenny, but... But still, it's Kenny Omega. Like, there, there is definitely, like, um, anyone who's seen, like, early Kenny, like, he's pretty much kind of always been himself, if if not, you know, if not actually in the actual moveset or skill level, um, definitely always un, uh, unabashedly his nerdy self in ring. And this is definitely DDT era. Kenny, where there's, you know, the, the video game moves thrown in to amongst the, like, more, you know, legitimate wrestling. Yeah, as I said, Riho's 12, but she looks even younger, because, I mean, she, you see her today, right? She's she's a slight woman. Here, she looks like a tiny girl, and she's wearing, like, a pink dress and knee pads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's a little unsettling, because it, it does look like there is a small child wrestling amongst a bunch of adults. That said, she's not taking, like, big, you know, she's not getting powerbombed. She's not taking, like, a death fire drive. She's not taking big bumps. She's doing stuff like lockups, standing switches, um, sentons, things like that. So they're still wrestling. In, you know, it's not, it's, what she does in the ring is no different than what a 12-year-old gymnast would be doing in, in a non-wrestling gym. Yeah, I mean, she's, um, and this match, by and large, despite a few moments, um, this match, by and large, is, is a more of a comedy match. Yeah, you get like double cartwheels. You get um, a series of them hitting like somersault sentons, just like twelve in a row, over and over again. Uh, you get what else? Riho goes for like forearms on Masa, but he grabs her by the nose. <laughs> Things like that. It's it's fun. It's lighthearted. Like it's fun. Everybody everybody's having a good time. Yeah, it's all it's all in good fun. Um, there's some, some pretty good, um, spots here, uh, especially, I think at some point Kenny has Emmy up, um, in what might be the proto, like one wing angel pose. And she just like claws his face and it's great. And I w- kind of wonder why more people don't do that in the moves. It's a very handy way to get out of that. Yeah. And like you said, Kenny does the street fighter. It's like a street fighter esque punch where he, you know, he, he, uh, Sets himself up like Ken or Ryu and does a Hadouken. Him and Riho both do one of those to Emmy's midsection. And Riho pins Emmy with a jackknife pin in 10 minutes and 5 seconds. Hmm. And despite matches like this, she still wins Joshi Wrestler of the Year. (laughs) This is the same year she wins Joshi Wrestler of the Year and she collects all the belts everywhere else. So I think, but that's like something important which a lot of American fans don't understand when they like check into Joshi for the first time is comedy and idol and all of that that's all intrinsic to the Joshi DNA over there like you'll see American fans will tune into especially a Joshi match 
from a random promotion and they'll be like oh like why why is this so fun they they expect it to just be strong style non-stop and it's like well there's a lot of that but there's also a lot of comedy there's also like when i got into stardom they were doing blind sword fight tournaments they were doing rock paper scissor tournaments costume battle royals and this was only a couple years ago yeah i mean and that's kind of the beauty of it is that there doesn't have to be one style or one genre within the realm of any wrestling but especially like you don't have to pigeonhole joshi into being just like really fast wrestlers who do like lots of like high moves and flippy stuff and and really fast fast paced matches there's plenty of room in japanese wrestling as a whole but also there's plenty of room in joshi wrestling to feature comedy and and performance and um deathmatch style and power style like and i think the cool thing about emi sakura that i i guess i didn't even realize until we what we did this episode is that like she's kind of great at everything she's kind of really good in every one of these aspects like she can do it all in a really versatile way in the way of somebody who teaches as well as wrestles so 2009 ends with emmy winning to be a sports joshi wrestler of the year 2010 she continues to wrestle for ice ribbon in different places April 2010, Riho wins the Ice X60 Championship. This is a championship in Ice Ribbon where the rule is you have to be under 60 kilograms in order to challenge for the title. That's uh, about 130 pounds. You have to weigh less than 130 pounds in order to compete for this title. Riho very easily fits the bill. She's 13 years old here. (laughs) Emmy, not so much, but she nominates Emmy to be her first challenger after Riho wins the title. And in order to qualify and face her for the belt, Emmy loses 22 pounds. That's a that's a lot. It's crazy to me that she had to lose pounds to become eligible for a belt that in the company that she owns. But it's a testament to her work ethic yeah. that she was able that she was she was willing and able to to drop to shed 22 pounds in order to compete for this title. Yeah. And I mean, she does in this match look like significantly more trim and not, not in a bad or good way. Like a, that's a very neutral statement, but she does look, she does, she looks a little bit more slender than she did in the previous matches we watched. So the next match on our playlist is Ice Ribbon from New Ribbon 180, May 2010. Riho versus Emi Sakura for the Ice 60 Championship. As I said, Riho's 13 here. She's looking a little bit older, like um, mm-hmm. she's on the she- cusp of puberty. Emmy is wearing red and white gear here. So like I said, like every, she doesn't have like consistent color scheme either. either. Like she'll wear purple sometimes. She'll wear like, she wore like gray with uh, yellow accents, I think in her first match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I think it's, it's less of a linear aesthetic as far as color choices and et cetera. And more just an overall concept of like always having a bold look. And her look is really like, it's, it's always really, really cool looking. Like she has very, um, she doesn't do like big frills and stuff, and yet her her gear is super memorable. I don't have like really much to say about this match, honestly. I just included it because I wanted a more straight example of Emmy versus Riho in like a one on one match, as opposed to say the comedy of the Kenny Omega tag. But mm-hmm. also, especially because Riho and Kari Yonayama are Emmy's sort of two big. Not ongoing rivals of the first half of her career. She wrestles them many, many, many times, different promotions, different places over the years. Yeah, and I mean, I enjoyed watching this because I enjoyed being able to see Riho 
as well as Emmy, I, I enjoyed seeing Riho like coming into her own as a as a like a full formed wrestler. Like all jokes about puberty aside, like she is aging into wrestling. Like she's she's becoming like a, a full forced wrestler of significant stature and like she she puts Emmy through the paces in this match. It was frankly I, I even believing I knew what the outcome was, I was still surprised at the end. Yeah, in the end, it's a series of flash pins, sort of reversed between the two of them, which results in Emmy picking up the win in 15 minutes, 51 seconds. Emmy captures the Ice 60 Championship. There's so many cool inversions of a roll-up in this. Like, there's so many cool, like, variations of, like, how you can do a, a essentially what is, like, a, a roll-up pin, but make it look athletic as hell. Like, pure gymnastics here. As I said, Riho and Kaori Yonayama, Emmy's two biggest rivals at this period especially, May 2010, Emmy sheds 22 pounds to win the Ice 60 Championship. Four months later, she sheds something else when she takes mm. on Kaori Yonayama in a hair versus hair match for the JWP Openweight Championship. It's JWP Revolution 2010, September 2010, Kaori Yonayama is the defending JWP Openweight Champion. These two have been friends, they've been rivals, they've been take partners. At this point, they are rivals once again, and it's hair versus hair for the title. Emmy has purple gear now. She's got short black hair. Kauri is out with, if anybody's familiar with Kauri Yonayama from today or more recently, I feel like she's always had this hair, like big, bushy red hair. Really, really uh, notable, really stands out. This is a hair versus hair match, and I've seen a lot of hair, or, okay, I've seen a fair amount of hair versus hair matches now, um, both in just wrestling in general and even in joshi wrestling. I've seen ones that are very, very brutal. I've seen ones that resulted in a cutting, in a hair cutting scene post-match that was just as brutal as the, as the match itself. Um, that being said, I've seen very few hair versus hair matches where it felt like the uh, motive was to rip the hair off your opponent's head while wrestling because they basically from the start are going at each other's heads throughout the entire thing, ripping at each other's heads, which makes the end of the match and the the, the culmination of this um, match all the more startling in its emotional heaviness uh, because I'm watching this match and I'm thinking, okay, they're just trying to rip each other's hair out from their roots while they're wrestling. What is this, you know, what is this cutting going to be like? Is it going to be that really brutal, that really, really brutal AJW style? I'm going to hack into you and you're leaving you bleeding and shorn. Uh, instead, it becomes this really, really heavy sentimental moment between these two women. Yeah, early on, they're throwing each other around by the hair. They fight up into the crowd, into the stands, we got, I don't think I've ever seen this before, but Kauri is leaning against the wall and Emmy hits a running crossbody. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, usually when you see somebody do a crossbody, whether it's in the ring or off the top rope, the whole point is like the person who's getting hit catches you and you fall backwards. But when you're leaning against a wall, there's no falling backwards. You just thud into the wall, hit the ground. Yeah, there are so many moments of this match that feel purely self-sacrificing. There's um, the diving knee spot when they're out of the ring and Ayuriyama gets the upper hand on Emmy. Like she's landing on her and there's no way, like there's no way that either of these women are protected, but especially not Yuriyama. 
Like, and that's that tone the entire time. It's worth noting around maybe the 10 minute mark, Cowrie has the win. She hits a knee strike off the top rope to the head of Emmy, gets the two count, but then she pulls Emmy up to prevent the referee's three count. Mm-hmm. And the match continues. And by this point, the crowd is behind Emmy. There's a Sakura chant from the crowd. In the end, it just gets, yeah, it, 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 this is Emmy's highest rated match on Cage Match, um, which, you know, Cage Match is whatever, but like at 9.4 rating by people, the highest match in Emmy's career. Because it ends with just them, they both go down after an Enziguri. Emmy hits a moonsault, but Cowie moves. Cowie hits a barrage of street strikes and knees. Emmy gets a lot of Magistral Cradle, but Cowie kicks out. Cowie gets a Sunset Bomb, but Emmy kicks out. And then in the end, Cowie hits her patented O'Connor roll into a bridging German suplex. Oh, it's so gorgeous. For the pin in 20 minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful suplex. It's, it's so good. And it finishes the match. And then we have what happens afterwards, right? Which is, if you lose a hair versus hair match, you're going to lose your hair. And Emmy is seated, regal, ready to receive like her ready to, to give up the prize and Carrie can't do it. Yeah. Carrie is crying. She keeps grabbing like a hand, uh, like a lock of hair, holding the scissors up and then like can't bring herself to do it. Yeah. She's weeping. And Emmy's like holding her face at moments and like not verbally reassuring her, but everything in her body language is encouraging her to do it. And then, and then, because she's about to. Sayaka Obahiro. She is an ice ribbon rookie who's been wrestling for five months. One of Emmy's many, many students. She enters the ring. She steals the scissors and she starts yelling at them. Basically, you know, we don't have subtitles, but essentially yelling at them saying, like, don't do this. Whatever. Like, stop. That's my teacher. That's my hero. Like, leave her alone. <laughs> yeah. And Emmy full on slaps her. Yeah. Like, I, I agreed to this. I lost. Yeah. I, because I deserve the punishment. Yeah. It's an honor. It's all, it's an entire question of honor. And like, Emmy's not going to sacrifice her honor for that. And that, you know, that resets the setting after that. Once, once Sayaka is out of the way, then Kairi's like, okay, you're right. Let's do this. And she just starts cutting off chunks of Emmy's hair. She gets an electric razor. She starts shaving. And then she ends up passing off to another man who finishes. He shaves Emmy completely bald. Well, Emmy is just sitting there, like, resigned to her fat, like a, like a monk. And Carrie is watching and just sobbing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how it, it closes with Carrie still crying, hugging Emmy, who's just like, okay, it happened. <laughs> a couple months later, late 2010, Ice Ribbon starts a rivalry with the promotion Sendai Girls. And this leads to matches between the two mentors. Actually, you know what? It's four days. Four days after getting her head shaved, you get Emi Sakura versus Miko Satamura. I wanted to put this on the playlist. I couldn't find it for streaming. That's 2010. Into 2011, February 2011, Emmy forms a tag team with Ray. Why is this notable? Well, because Ray was Emmy's very first student ever in her Gatokunian days, the first wrestler Emmy ever trained to, in the art of wrestling. 
she comes back, she teams up with Emmy, and the two of them win the Ice Ribbon Take titles that March of 2011. October of 2011, we get Ice Ribbon versus Pro Wrestling Eve in England. Over two days, we had three shows with Eve and Ice Ribbon working together, fall of 2011. This is Emmy's debut for England. And Eve has only been in promotion for a year and a half. So, you know, hats off to Dan Reed that they managed to pull this off after only a year and a half as a promotion. On the first night of the tour, Emmy teams with Hikari Minami. They pick up a win over Shanna and Aaron Angel. Night two, Emmy teams with Shanna. They pick up a win over Hikari Minami and Jenny Shoden. And night three, Emmy challenges Jenny for the Eve Championship, but fails to win the title. Then, two months later, something interesting. And I searched far and wide, and I have still to this date, I've been unable to find any elaboration. Out of nowhere, December 14th, 2011, Emmy announces that she's leaving Ice Ribbon for personal reasons after the January 7th event. This is the promotion that she founded, this promotion that she started out of an old dentist office. And I still can't find any information as to why she chose to leave her own promotion. Her final Ice Ribbon match is January of 2012. She loses to Tsukushi. And they announced that following Emmy's departure, the new head trainers for Ice Ribbon will be Tsukasa Fujimoto and Hikaru Shida. Ice Ribbon will continue without Emmy. The next night, January 8th of 2012, Emmy is a special guest on Bull Nakano's retirement show. Emmy teams with Meiko Satomura and Nana Takahashi in a trio's tag. Whatever the reasons for her leaving Ice Ribbon are, it's clear that, again, like, whatever was going on backstage there, Emmy has wrestling in her blood, she can't be wrestling, and she can't, she's just destined to be a teacher and a mentor. Like, that's not something that she can ever divorce herself from, clearly. So February 2012, at a JWP event, Emmy announces that she's starting another new promotion, this time in Bangkok, Thailand. She already started Gatakunian, she already started Ice Ribbon, now she's starting a third one. And sure enough, her old rival, Kari Yonayama, shows up and challenges her to yet another match. This time, Kari says, if you win, if I win, Kari, forget this idea of starting a new promotion. Stop that nonsense. Just come wrestle for JWP. If I lose, though, I will leave JWP and I'll join you. I'll follow you to Thailand. One <laughs> week later, well, and so Emmy seems like convinced that she's going to win because a week later she says, well, I'm starting a new promotion and it's going to be called Bangkok Girls Pro Wrestling, BKK Pro. <laughs> the story here is Emmy met a big wrestling fan who's living in Thailand and they informed her that there's a lot of wrestling fans in Thailand, but there's no promotions. There's no wrestling infrastructure of any time. It's not like Japan. Japan wrestling is everywhere. In fact, you might argue in the early months of 2012, Joshi wrestling is oversaturated in Japan. There's so many promotions. There's so many options. So instead of being one of many in Japan, they could be the first Joshi promotion in Thailand. Now, she has no money, and she doesn't speak Thai. But she's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Emi Sakura, folks. Love her so much.
I just, I love her. It's, it's the epitome of where there's a will. Like, it's just, I absolutely, I absolutely um, am so behind her work ethic, but also her, her dare to do what she wants under her terms and follow her, her instincts for something. I just think that that is so cool. April 22nd, 2012, on the JWP 20th anniversary show, it's Emmy versus Kari Yonayama with their futures on the line. Emmy picks up the win this time. They both keep their hair, but because of Emmy's win here, Kari is obligated to follow her to Thailand. Mm -hmm. And BKK Pro has their second head trainer. A couple weeks later, they decide to change the name. They don't like BKK Pro anymore. They have a new name, and their new name for this promotion is Gato Move. They call the promotion Gato Move. They find male wrestler Madoka. They bring him in to be a head trainer as well. There's three of them now. And May 16, 2012, Gato Move runs their first show. At the same time that Gato Move is starting up, Emmy's still wrestling for other places. She's still wrestling for JWP. Her and Carrie end up winning the take titles in JWP. And Emmy wins the Open Weight Championship for the first time. The one that she lost her hair trying to win, she finally accomplishes and wins the belt. That October of 2012, Riho makes her Gato Move debut, wrestling Emmy in her debut match. It's a 10-minute draw this time. Riho's getting older, and Emmy is finally like figuring out how to not lose, lose to her. <laughs> uh, November of 2012, Pro Wrestling Eve runs Wrestle Fever. Emmy is on the card. She defends her JWP Openweight Championship successfully against Kaylee Ray. And then later in the show, Eve champion Nikki Storm issues an open challenge. Emmy answers the open challenge, and Emmy Sakura wins the Pro Wrestling Eve Championship. At the end of December, Gato Move and JWP decide to end their working relationship. They're not going to be uh, collaborating so much anymore. As a result, Kari Yonayama decides to leave JWP, just like she had kayfabe been uh, obligated to leave a couple months earlier. Kari decides she's going to become a freelancer, and she's going to use this opportunity to continue working with Gato Move. Into 2013, Emmy ends up losing the EVE Championship back to Nikki Storm. May 2013, Emmy debuts her stardom, wrestling Nana Takahashi to a 15-minute time limit draw. And a couple weeks later, she's back in England for Eve's Queen of the Ring tournament. She loses to Shanna in the finals of the Queen of the Ring tournament. But So she's splitting her time between England and Japan. Now, she's wrestling fairly often for Eve, considering like she's mm-hmm. Japan-based. She's, won, she's held their top title in Eve, actually. June 2013 is also notable because Emmy returns to IWJ, IWA Japan, her very first promotion. She returns to IWA Japan. She wins the AWF women's title for the second time, 16 years after she first held it. Wow. So she's entering the veteran stage of her career at this point in 2013. Like she's been wrestling for over 17 years. She's winning titles that she had previously held 16 years earlier. You know, like that's that's a lifespan. Literally, she held this title before Riho was born. <laughs> In IWA Japan, that November, Emmy wins the IWA World Championship, which she then unifies with the AWF Women's Championship and the IWA Junior Heavyweight Championship 
She's holding, she's holding all three of these titles now, and she merges all three of them together into what they call the IWA Triple Crown Championship. This is important because the IWA Triple Crown Championship, Emmy then brings to Gato Move, and it becomes Gato Move's main championship. It's the big title in their promotion going forward, is this Triple Crown title. Mm. 2014, 2015, Emmy's wrestling mostly for Gato Move, but she does make appearances here and there. She wrestles some shows for DDT, she wrestles some shows for Seedling. August of 2015, Gato Move runs Cork and Hall for the first time to celebrate Emmy's 20th anniversary as a wrestler. On the card, Emmy teams with Makoto, they take on Hikaru Shida and Sayaka Obahiro. And then April of 2016, Emmy returns to Ice Ribbon for the first time in four years, which is a big deal because we know, like, we don't know the details of what went on, but clearly something went on backstage that would cause her to walk away from the promotion she founded and go start another promotion instead. Like that, that we can we can infer this just based on yeah. the circumstances. I'm wondering what was going on behind the scenes and who maybe was no longer a player at in Ice Ribbon um, by then, by, you know, four years later, because it feels like there was personal dynamics at stake. And that is one, that is why it was a more abrupt departure than, than one would have expected by someone who founded the company. But whatever changed in those four years since she left Ice Ribbon, Emmy returns to Ice Ribbon for a surprise appearance, April of 2016. She shows up unannounced and she confronts Tsukasa Fujimoto. As I mentioned earlier, when Emmy left Ice Ribbon, the role of head trainer for Ice Ribbon was transferred over to Hikaru Shida and Tsukasa Fujimoto. And in the four years since, Fujimoto has really become the face of Ice Ribbon. She's in the role that Emmy was in five years earlier. Fujimoto is the, the star of Ice Ribbon. She's a head trainer. She's been a multi-time champion. Emmy shows up to confront her ahead of Ice Ribbon's 10th anniversary and challenges her to a match. Emmy basically says, you know, 10 years for Ice Ribbon, that's enough. I founded the promotion, it had a good run. I think it's time to shut this thing down. You and me, if I win, Ice Ribbon is finished. If you win, eh, we'll see what happens. They enlist a couple of their friends, and we get a tag match at Ice Ribbon's 10th anniversary show, May 4th, 2016. Emi Sakura and Nana Takahashi taking on the tag team of best friends, Tsukasa Fujimoto and Arisa Nakajima. This one is a hoot. This is Emi's second highest rated match on Cage Match. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, I, I, it's a tag match. Um, it's not as, it's not, I, I didn't, um... It's a tag match. I didn't love this one quite as much as the hair versus hair match, but man, you can't like, it's also a really hard match to keep track of because there is something going on at every second. And you get a lot of what you expect. Like we said, Emmy just celebrated 20 years as an active wrestler. So you get that story within the, within the four person match, you get the one-on-one story between Emmy and Fujimoto of the sort of like veteran versus youth. So Emmy's willing to dish out punishment, and Tsukasa's willing to take it. She'll stand there and go toe-to-toe with the veteran, throwing forearms, exchanging chops, whatever. So she looks plucky and resilient, and like, I'm not going to back down to you just because you have the experience and the age over me. But 
Emmy le- Emmy levels her every time. So she's like, "Come on, I'll f- I'll meet you with chops." And Emmy says, "Okay," and then just like pummels her. It just like destroys her. And like there's a towards the end of this match, um, there is like a four minute sequence of like Emmy just using every any number of finishing attempts on her opponent, and it like it just doesn't take. It never takes. She they always get the kick out. So um, it makes it makes Fujimoto look insanely strong. Yeah, we get oh, what do we get? Let me check my notes here. Let's see. We get Emmy hitting a her top rope her kanvana on her partner for the purposes of sending her partner flying through the air and landing on Sukasa. <laughs> then Emmy hits a top rope moonsault, but uh, Nakajima breaks up the pin. We get Emmy and her and Takahashi hitting stereo top rope splashes. Fujimoto kicks out. Emmy hits the tiger driver. Fujimoto kicks out. Saito suplex. Fujimoto kicks out. Emmy goes up top. Fujimoto hits her with an enziguri. Back and forth, back and forth. And in the end, Sukasa hits a springboard enziguri to Emmy for the pin. Best friends in 20 minutes and 28 seconds. This one is worth seeking out, although maybe find a slightly different, better venue for your match than the one we chose. <laughs> the website for the match. But yeah, so as a, as a result, um, you know, best friends pick up the win, and Emmy basically gives Sukasa her blessing to continue Ice Ribbon and have it keep keep going on after all. Because she, you know, and you love that story. It's the the person who founded the company and left returning four years later and saying like this thing like enough shut this thing down already it's not the old ice ice ribbon like it's not what it used to be and then she has this match and basically emmy and kayfabe comes out of it going you know what i was wrong ice ribbon is in good hands and i'm happy to see it continue yeah it's kind of a beautiful way to um cap off what she founded um because i don't think she did she hasn't done much with ice ribbon since right so I think that it was a nice way to like come back and be able to do to to leave things properly. That November of 2016 and February of 2017, Emmy makes a couple more appearances for Pro Wrestling Eve in England, challenging Rio O'Reilly for the Eve Championship, but she cannot win the title. August of 2017, it's Emmy versus Riho for the vacant IWA Triple Crown Championship. As I said. The IWA Triple Crown is the main championship in Gato Move at this point in time. It's been vacated after an injury. So it's Emmy versus Riho to crown a new Triple Crown champion. Emmy picks up the win over Riho this time. But immediately after the match, she then announces that they are retiring the Triple Crown championship. IWA Japan itself has closed its doors three years earlier. So IWA Japan, Emmy's very first promotion, it's no more. They're retiring the Triple Crown champion. Instead, Gato Move is going to introduce their own championship for the first time, the Super Asia Championship. Emmy competes in the tournament to crown the first Super Asia champion, but she loses to Katori in the first round. That November, back to England for Eve's She Won tournament. In her block, Emmy picks up a win over Jetta, but she loses to Viper, Piper Niven, and to Mako Satamura. March of 2018, Emmy wrestles in England again, but this time it's not for Eve, it's for XWA. 
she's taking on a young Jordan Grace. <laughs> this is interesting because, so she's 23, 24 years into her career at this point, but Pro Wrestling Eve is pretty much the only promotion Emmy has wrestled for outside of Japan. In Japan, she's wrestled for like a dozen different promotions at this point, but she's never wrestled in North America. She's only wrestled pretty much Japan and England, and in England, it's been exclusively Eve. A lot of shows for Eve, a lot more than you'd expect for a gaijin wrestler, but not really anywhere else, despite the longevity of her career. I mean, Luna Vershawn came over and wrestled her in Japan, but she never wrestled in America yet. I, again, I just I wonder if it's like she's just slightly flying under the radar. She's a wrestler's wrestler. She's she's for those who are in the know. Um, and, you know, from the get go, the people behind Pro Wrestling Eve have been ahead of the game when it comes to spotting like the the best of the best, the, the worthwhile Joshi to bring overseas for their shows. And, you know, as, as far as anyone who's like, you know, able to work with them and get over there. But um yeah, it's just incredible. At this point in her career, she hadn't been to North America yet. 2018, 2019, Emmy's still wrestling mostly in Gato Move. Like 80% of her time is spent in Gato Move, understandably. But she makes up more appearances for Eve, for DDT, for Pure J. April of 2019, she's back in England debuting for RevPro, where she takes on Stevie Turner. And around this time, she decides to start yet another wrestling school because she's just like one of these workaholics who just can't can't stop training Again, future generations. Respect. Massive respect for this. This time, her wrestling school is called the Dare Demo Joshi Puro Resu. It's run by her as well as some of her other like current former students like Mesuruga. This is different because it's not like... So many of the wrestling, wrestling dojos are part of a large wrestling promotion. And the idea is, you know, you start at the New Japan dojo, you work your way up into competing on a New Japan card as a young lion or whatever. This is more like if you wanted to go take a cooking class at the local, local college or you wanted to go learn how to blow glass or something like that. Quote, the idea is to offer a suitable environment for any woman, regardless of age, experience, etc., to learn the basics of pro wrestling in a casual manner within a professional, safe environment. It's, it's not even like some of you might go on to be full time pro wrestlers if you want, but some of you, this might just be like a fun thing to do on the weekends, like taking a knitting class or something. And as a result, the Dare Demo of School, they've had girls as young as eight and they've had women as old as 48 showing up to take these classes. I love that. I love the ethic, I like the ethos behind that. I, I love the idea of like having a wrestling training school that, you know, the intention is just to learn it for whatever reason. And that really frees up the accessibility about it because you can be a 40 year old person and be interested in learning this without any desire to really do it on a bigger scale than just, you know, the same way somebody would take an aerobics class or a boxing class or, you know, any kind of lessons. Treating wrestling as something that it could be could be accessible for anyone at any level with any intention. I wish I had that. I would, I would do something like this for sure. It sounds like it sounds fun. I would completely do that. I mean, I get I get that in some ways it's a little less practical than training a academy of wrestlers who are going to go out there and make a name for your wrestling school by working for promotions and stuff. But 
I also think there's something really beautiful about offering the opportunities to learn some of these fundamentals to people who will only ever use it in your classes. Anyway, I just think it's really cool. She's just so cool. May 25th, 2019, a new American promotion called All Elite Wrestling is running their first show ever. They don't even have a TV deal. They're just a t-shirt company. (laughs) But they're running a pay-per-view. They're calling it Double or Nothing. One of the men who is integral to the promotion is former Japan wrestler, Joshi Fanatic, Kenny Omega. (laughs) Kenny wants a match on the card to really spotlight Joshi Wrestling on AEW's first show ever. He arranges and helps to book a six-woman, all-Joshi tag match on the show. Obviously, Kenny is a big fan of Young Riho. I mean, they've teamed together five times in Ice Ribbon, Gato Move, DDT, different places. And obviously, as we covered, he's well familiar with Emi Sakura. This leads to Emi's first match ever in America. The match at Double or Nothing ends up being... A couple of Emmys, former students, former current perpetual students, Riho, Hikaru Shida, and Ryo Mizunami, they pick up a win over Emi Sakura, Yuka Sakazaki, and Aja Kong. What is perhaps most notable about this show for American fans who had never seen or heard of Emi Sakura before is she comes out wearing a fake mustache dressed like, what is that, a marching band leader? No. She's got this Freddie Mercury look. Yes, complete with mustache. Yes, and I, as I said, you know, people who aren't familiar with the Joshi wrestling and the the uh, range of moods and types of Joshi wrestling were immediately like, what is this garbage? Like, what is this nonsense? This is so dumb. But here's the story. Emmy had just seen the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody and, just got, and she just like got really into Queen. <laughs> through that movie. And she's looking at the other people in this match. Aja Kong, like well-known globally as a legend. Riho, really iconic. Yuka Sakazaki. This was my first time seeing Yuka Sakazaki. And when she walked out through the curtain with her look and her outfit, and I, was, I was captivated. I was like, oh my God, who's this? I love this look. And Emmy is cognizant enough of all this, this far into her career. She says, this could have been my first and last match at AEW. Compared to the others on the roster, I didn't really have a character. We talked about this. She has she's had different gear every time we see her. She doesn't have like a strong gimmick or look, iconic look in the same way some of these other women do, like Aja Kong. She says, I didn't really have a character. I wanted to make an instant impact. Aja Kong is strong. Riho is cute. I wanted to stand out as well. I think that makes total sense. Again, she has a innate understanding of presentation that really is was so clear early on, but is also a part of just being the consummate professional and being a person who both operates wrestling schools and promotions and trains wrestlers and builds a generation of wrestlers. Part of what she knows is how to get people to pay attention to her in the business. And like, whether you thought it was goofy and weird or whether you thought it was really fucking cool, which it is, uh, the, the coming out dresses Freddie Mercury makes people pay attention and then they're paying attention to her as a persona and as a wrestler and that's a really valuable thing if all you get is one impression to make 
that's the thing. A lot of people online, a lot of men online, like really didn't like it or really didn't understand it or get it. Yeah, this but it had my... it had the effect she wanted. Like people yeah. still talk about it today. People still remember it today. I think people look back on it and think of it as like, oh, she was doing this for like months and months. I don't think it was that long. It might have just been the fake mustache. Might have been just that one show, but it left an impression. Yeah, I don't know how long she was doing the fake mustache exactly, but she was definitely doing for the first. I'd say six months of her run in AEW going like, especially leading up to when she did the match against Rio at like, I think it was revolution 2019. Um, she definitely was still doing the mercury look in her like ring entrance gear and et cetera. And her, like, you know, her move, her flourishes and stuff when she was doing her entrances into the ring. I don't know if she's still always wearing the mustache, but she's definitely still wearing that gear, like probably into 2019 or uh, in almost into 2020. She knew this could be her one and only appearance for AEW, her one and only in America. She doesn't, she wasn't contracted anything more. So sure enough, she comes over, she has this one match, her team loses, and then she's back to Japan. She's wrestling for Gato Mu, she's back in England, she's wrestling for Eve. But she is back in America for AEW. Five months later, she reappears in AEW on the second episode of Dynamite. So that's the other thing. She, has, she hasn't been in AEW in the five months in between, but they've only had like one other show. They don't have a TV deal yet. As soon as Dynamite starts appearing on TV weekly, she's on episode two. She's on episode two, teaming with B Priestley in a loss to Riho and Britt Baker. But she's there. And then a couple weeks later, she's on Dark, picking up a win in a four-way over Penelope yep. Ford, Alley, and Sadie Gibbs. That was filmed in Pittsburgh, PA. I was in the audience for that one. And a week later on Dynamite, she's teaming with Jamie Hayter to pick up a win over Riho and Shauna. Ah, oh my god, Shauna. <laughs> so she's got a couple wins in AEW under her belt now. This leads in to AEW Full Gear, November 2019, Riho versus Emi Sakura for the AEW Women's Championship. This was a rushed build, if we recall. Like, the match was announced at the last minute, and you didn't get the video packages explaining, hey, she trained her, and they've been wrestling each other since she was nine. We didn't really get a lot of that on AEW TV. Nope. We got none of that on AEW TV. We got all of that in... Probably on, like, the Road to Full Gear YouTube special. I don't know. I remember, which I probably missed because I saw all that for the first time watching the pay-per-view. Yeah. So a disappointing, like, you know, what could have been for that match. But she does get a big singles match on an AEW pay-per-view. She does end up wrestling on the first and last AEW pay-per-view of 2019. And that's not the end of it either. The end of the month, she's back on Dynamite, teaming with B. Priestley to pick up a win over Sheeta and Chris Statlander. Two weeks later, she's on Dynamite, taking on Big Swole one-on-one. Big Swole picks up the win, but she's there. In fact, of the first 11 episodes of AEW Dynamite, she wrestles on four of them. And that's a lot. Like, you look at today, how many women can pick 11 episodes from AEW Dynamite in 2023? I don't know if there's too many women who have wrestled on four of them. So she's a featured player on Dynamite, is what I'm saying. Like she's been, she's wrestled on four of the first eleven. She's been on two of the pay-per-views. She was number one contender for the women's title there. After this December 2019 Dynamite match against Big Swole, she goes back to Japan for some more shows for Gato Move, and then the COVID-19 pandemic hits. 
And so that's the big question mark. Is up until this point, she's been featured regularly on Dynamite. She's here as on TV as much as Riho, as much as Britt Baker and Karashida and some of these others more than Jamie Hayter and God, definitely more than Sadie Gibbs and Shana at this point. <laughs> but she goes back to Japan and the pandemic hits. And as we recall, because it still is a fresh wound everything shuts down and Japan is gets is one of the countries like Italy that gets hit first everything gets shut down travel etc she's no way of getting back to America and so we don't know what might have been in 2020 for Emmy Sakura and AEW how differently things could have gone if it hadn't been for the pandemic yeah I mean there is a decent chance that she never would have gotten a huge run in AEW even if she wasn't essentially shut out of the country for a year plus um but yeah it's it's kind of a shame because there definitely seemed to be momentum there i mean she did as little build as was done for the match she did have a women's title match at one of the first pay-per-views that the promotion did after becoming a television product so that's not nothing there was faith there and there was an interest in veteran in women's veteran like veteran women's wrestling um early on because they had her, they had Amazing Kong, they 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 did have people involved early on in, in AEW Dynamite that were like potentially um your like veteran pillars for the women's division. It just it didn't gel in time for when the pandemic hit. So twenty twenty things are really locked down in Japan. They're not doing live crowds at shows. Gato Move still exists, of course. She's still running it. They're still doing little things and they're dojo and they want to stay active they want to still be creating content and wrestling and doing things but if you can't do it without fans what can you do how can you change things and the end result is something that they call choco pro i didn't write anything on this this is all you am tell us about choco pro (laughs) um Taco Pro is a little hard to explain, but Taco Pro is essentially a wrestling and it is more of a talk variety show, live vlog, um, hangout sesh than it is a just specific wrestling. There's wrestling, um, there's Gato Move Wrestling attached to Taco Pro, but Taco Pro is more than simply a wrestling show if that is a succinct way to put it. Part of it is like a children's show, like a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood or something to that effect. Because they're like talking to the camera. Yes. The 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 audience is the people at home. They've they've owned that fully. Yeah. They they have like fairly short wrestling shows about twice a week. They're based on YouTube, so you can like subscribe to it. I think it's paid subscription. Um fairly but there's there's free content like all the time. Um so they can spawn you people essentially sponsor the promotion. Um, and it takes place in like a, I don't even in like a little, like what looks to be a office building where they removed all the furniture. Like it takes place in like a, essentially like an office where there would have been cubicles, but instead there's just gym mats on the floor or like not even gym mats, like a Brown carpet. <laughs> um, there's no ring. Um, there's no stage. Um, there is maybe at most when there's wrestling going on, there's maybe like 20 people there. Um, it's 
it's really, and this is all to say, it sounds rather rinky-dink, but it's kind of magical in its own way because it it forces the wrestlers to be, you can't really do a ton of high spots. There's not a whole lot of places you can jump off of. There's, there's jumping off of chairs. There's jumping off of like window ledges, but there really isn't much of the way that you can work with. So it's kind of incredible to see the kind of spots that they can get creative with. They've basically been set, they, they're given the limitations, the wrestlers, of not having all the basic things that you get in a wrestling ring. So how can you be creative and get your spots in and make those spots interesting and and uh, uh, look legitimately impactful when you're essentially like you can get no higher than like a chair level? Um, it's really cool, actually. It's it's. Uh, very low tech in that way. It's very low fi. It's got a family vibe to it. It's very um commendable. The the there's often commentary. There's um there's matches and shows on YouTube, and so there's often commentary that is in English. Um, they get a lot of DDT wrestlers popping into Gato Move and Chaco Pro, so that you can see some of your like favorites. Like Chris Brooks has done time in there. Um, it's great. I I really highly recommend checking out Chaco Pro. Uh, because it's very singular in the way that it's run. It has really good vibes, and the non-wrestling content is just cute as hell. On the success of Choco Pro, Emmy has said, we didn't do it this way by thinking, let's do it like this. It's because we have no money, couldn't rent the venues, don't have a ring. I realize it has turned into our originality. That's the, that's like the motto of her career, right? Is like making do of what you can, just like powered by the passion of pro wrestling. Yeah, I mean, it's got like a, come on, kids, let's put on a show type of vibes to it. And I can't, you know me, I can't resist that. I am a, come on, kids, let's put on a show type of person. That's all this podcast is. But that is this podcast. That is every, like, artistic endeavor that I've ever done, and probably you too. Um, and I think that's something I find so charming about it. But, like, also you have to remember that she is a world-class wrestler, and... Chaco Pro is made up of a lot of people who have learned under her and other world-class wrestlers. So, yes, you'll see some goofy stuff in Chaco Pro. Yes, you're going to see people on this, like, big chocolate carpet square, essentially. But you're also going to see matches that are, like, well worth your time. And you're going to see wrestlers who are well worth your time. Um, there was a lot made over WrestleMania weekend this past year, or this past uh, uh, end of March, early April, about Best Bros. Uh, Baliaki and Mesa Ruga and like their Chaco Pro mainstays. That's where they that's that's where they get their bread and butter. And yes, they work for DDT, they work all over, but they are Chaco Pro entities first and foremost. And if you enjoyed their wrestling and their chemistry and their insane amount of personality, you can see that and more when you watch Chaco Pro. As twenty twenty one arrives, COVID travel restrictions begin to loosen up a little. AEW announces a 16-woman Women's World Championship Eliminator Tournament. Half the bracket is American wrestlers, half the bracket is Japanese wrestlers. The Japanese quarterfinal matches are filmed at the Ice Ribbon Dojo. Emi picks up a win over Veni, and Yuka Sakazaki, Aja Kong, Ryo Mizunami also advance. A week later, those four women are flown over to Florida to tape the semifinal matches in the tournament, at Daly's place. Emmy ends up losing to Yuka in the second round. But she's back. She's wrestled a match in America for the first time in a year and a half. After this, she goes back to Japan. She wrestles for Gato Move again. And then that summer, July of 2021, Emmy announces that 
she will be returning to AEW, this time full-time. For the first time, she'll be full-time in America for AEW. She is signed on as a player coach. This is the same thing that Dustin Rose is doing, where you wrestle on TV and on Dark especially, but you're also training wrestlers behind the scenes at the same time. This, so she's been a player coach for 15 years at this point with Ice Raven and Gato Move and Choco Pro and all these different places. Mm-hmm. Now she's going to do it in America. Yeah, makes sense. It makes total sense. It feels like she can't resist the urge to, like, do more when she can. August 2021, she wrestles her last Gato Move show before going to America. It's her versus Mei Saruga. Emmy picks up the win in 36 minutes and 25 seconds. Again, 36 minutes, just just by comparison. A week later, Emmy is in America. She's wrestling on AEW Dark. She picks up a win over Maddie Renkowski. From August of 2021 to March of 2022, Emmy wrestles 37 times on Dark. Every match is between two to seven minutes long. And it always follows the same basic dark formula. So she'll pick up a win over non-contracted people like Lady Luck or Charlotte Renegade, but she'll lose to contracted people like Ruby Soho and Chris Statlander. She's right in that middle there. She like loses to AEW stars, but she picks up wins over unsigned stars. And for six months, that's it. She's just on dark, just wrestling these five-minute dark enhancement matches, essentially. She makes one non-dark appearance in this period that's as part of the casino battle war at all out which again is just like a you know a big battle war with a bunch of people she's in it she's eliminated a couple minutes later it's nothing special uh especially compared to the 36 minute match that she just wrestled before she left japan wrestling these four minute matches against like no offense people like maddie renkowski not quite the same thing yeah i mean love maddie but it's just it's it's such a weird position to put her in considering her her veteran status. She does, because of this stuff, she does manage to land on the PWI 500 for 2021. She does rank at number 75 on the PWI female 150. But it's clear that she's not really like loving the situation either. On her Twitter, she says, I think the reason why I've been able to wrestle for so long is that I make the most of not only myself, but myself as someone's opponent. I survived by continuing to be an opponent for newcomers. But that doesn't happen in AEW. So I think the I think what she's trying to say is, you know, like in Ice Ribbon, in going back to AJW, in Got to Move, the reason she's had such a long career is that she's a great opponent for like young people and she makes them look like a million bucks and helps get them over. But three to five minute matches on dark isn't isn't accomplishing that nobody's getting over in a three minute match on youtube no they're not there there's especially on a on a product like dark which um has so many matches on it march 2022 emmy returns to gato move and she does six shows there and again by contrast so march she's in gato move every match she has is between 16 and 30 minutes april and may she's back in AEW. Every match is five minutes long on Dark. She does get to make one appearance in Eve at this period in time where she takes on Charlie Morgan. But then June, July is the same thing. June, she's in Gato Move wrestling long matches, competitive matches against 
The top stars of Gato Move. July and August, she's back on AEW Dark. September, she's in Gato Move for the 10th anniversary show. October, November, she's on AEW Dark. Same format as it's been for two years now. She picks up wins over unsigned talent. She loses it to signed talent. December, she's in Gato Move. January, she's in Dark. She's back and forth, back and forth, and it feels like nothing's going to change. Until, shockingly, it does. I don't know why. I don't know how. Maybe it was by request of the champ. But all of a sudden, January 27th, 2023, Jamie Hayter versus Emi Sakura in an Eliminator match on AEW Rampage, Emmy's first AEW TV match in over three years. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, her and Jamie have a history. They had fought in EVE many years earlier. So maybe it's by request, maybe somebody in the back, whether it's a Kenny Omega or an Excalibur, who we know is like well-educated on all things wrestling. It's a similar situation. It's almost exactly the same situation as we saw a couple years earlier. Riho won the title and they needed a good first opponent for Riho. And they said, you know who Riho has great rapport with? Emi Sakura. Mm. Same thing here. Jamie Hayter wins the title. They say, we want Jamie to have like a great TV match. Who would be a good opponent? And they say, you know who Jamie has great rapport with? Emi Sakura. Mm. And just like with Double or Nothing, Emi says, seemingly, or, or goes in this match seemingly knowing, this might be my only, this could be my first and last TV match. I'm going to maximize my minutes. And it does. Really, really does. This is, um, this is both a, a great reestablishment for Emmy and a great establishing uh, run for, for Jamie because this is pretty fresh from getting the belt. Yeah. So this is, this is a really good outing for both these women. Um, and it's a shame it's an eliminator match and not, you know, for the title. But I also kind of respect that, like, they, they wanted to do this in a more staged way, they, in a more step-by-step way, um, and give Jamie, uh, you know, credit to take on even, like, you know, a challenger for a potential challenge. And um, they look really strong in this. Emmy looks great, very resilient, very much a steady hand in this match. Jamie's got explosive offense um, that Emmy counters at every given turn. Um, she is seconded, which is really cool, because it. I'm, one thing I really like about... Um, Emmy's run in AEW, even with the dark stuff, is that they continue to allow her to have um, a second from clearly from her like stable of people. So like May has been her second, um, Baliaki is the is the second in this match, and it's cool because it gives her like she has a valet, like she has a big entrance. It it makes her feel like a big deal, whether she's been doing time on dark or whether she's getting a shot at a shot for the women's title. Um, and I appreciate that because, again, this is a woman who understands presentation. I think it's really cool that they're that they continue to provide her the tools to to do that to the level of excellence that she is accustomed to. Yeah, Jamie has Britt Baker and Rebel in her corner. Emmy has Baliana Key and Mesa in her corner, mm-hmm. and she's doing this sort of like queen of wrestling, queen of Joshi wrestling look now, where she has a like a queen's robe and crown in all purple. She's wearing purple lipstick. So more of like a, more of a defined look than she ever had in her, like her younger Joshi days for sure. Because again, the different audiences and this audience kind of needs something like that to latch onto it. I think, especially because she doesn't get consistent screen time or stories over here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think it's kind of a cool through line of like, Okay, she was queen, inspired by the band Queen, and now she is a queen. 
Yeah, and she dominates most of this match, honestly. Like, the majority of the match is her just beating the hell out of Jamie. Yeah. Although her match, her uh, chest ends up being completely red from chops by the end, too. So Jamie gets some licks in. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I like I like this match for both of these women. I think they both end up looking really, really strong. And the win feels justified. Yeah, in the end, it's a trio of lariats, I think, from Jamie that gives her the win in 12 minutes. And even on commentary, it seems genuine with Jim Ross saying excellent match and Jericho saying the best match Sakura has had in AEW. Yeah. Um, yeah. At one point, Jericho does say it's her biggest match in AEW. And I'm thinking, well, she did have an actual shot at the title on a pay-per-view. So I think that might technically rank higher, but okay. <laughs> I do think it was her best match in di- on, on televised AEW. Now, following this match, she's back to dark for two months. And so it would be easy to think, well, that was fun. That was an anomaly. We're moving on. We like we won't see her on TV again. She'll be mostly a coach backstage. But then maybe some hope spots. March 3rd on Rampage, she's back uh, putting over Riho. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, she's on ROH Honor Club putting over Athena. Two weeks after that, she's back on Rampage, putting over Taya Valkyrie. So she's losing, but she's losing on TV this time in long-form matches against top opponents, you know, former champions, current champions. Yeah, they're clearly bringing her in to make her opponents seem even more dominant. Like, I mean, obviously, that's why you use any one of these type of matches, but, like, they're giving that role to Emmy, and, like, she can do it. She can do it with her eyes closed, honestly. And that last match there against Ty Valkyrie was just two weeks ago. So that takes us up to the present. This week, she is in Japan for Gato Move. She's teaming with Kari Yonayama. She's teaming with Mesa Ruga. Her and Kari are still out there. They're still going. They're still teaching the youth of the future. Gato Move is still a thing. Choco Pro is still a thing. Emi's still a player coach for AEW. And with any hope, you know, she'll continue to get featured matches on TV like she's had against Jamie and Athena because the reception has been great these past couple of months. For her future, I mean, Kenny Omega has called Emmy one of the best women's wrestlers of all time. He's correct. This August will mark 28 years of in-ring action for Emmy. She's coming up on 46 years old, but she's still, she's still putting on like amazing matches. There's no, nothing left in her step by any means. As for her future, she has said that an AEW show in Japan is a dream of hers. AEW running a pay-per-view or some sort of big event there. And they could be testing the waters with Wembley Stadium having like this big show in England. She has, as you might surmise from all of her matches in Pro Wrestling Eve and her love of Queen, she says, having AEW compete at Wembley Stadium is the biggest miracle of my life. I want to stand on the same stage as Queen. I must do anything to be selected as a member. Oh my god, if they don't book her for that show, I'm going to send a, a actual glitter bomb to Tony Khan's household. Beyond that, Got to Move is still a thing, AEW is still a thing, and ME will, I'm sure, as we've said, even if the locations change, even if the name of the promotion changes, she cannot stop herself from being involved in wrestling and training the next generations of wrestlers. I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing Emmy's mark on wrestling 
overall, especially Joshi, but wrestling overall for like generations to come. She says, in this life filled with hardship and failure, new challenges are what really gives you hope and happiness. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Patreon at Grit Glitter Pod. Bonus episodes, uh, old podcasts, new current podcasts where we do stuff like this regarding the history of WWE and their women's division, all sorts of stuff like that. Thank you for listening. As always, we'll be back next week with another episode of Grit and Glitter.